Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I need 90 minutes. If you can give it to me, I'll give you the world and we'll understand better current events as they are unfolding across this world, seemingly fitting in to the prophetic scenario that is found in the Bible. We'll look at what God's Word has to say, and then if indeed these current events seem to be similar, then we will say, hey, this is an indication of how close we are to what the Bible says will happen next, the rapture of the church, when all of those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be going out of this world into the heavenlies to be with Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the message I'm going to be teaching when I go to Grace Chapel. I'm here in Greer, South Carolina. That's a temporary studio that we have set up. And by the way, Greer, South Carolina is the hometown of all of my family. My grandfather, great-grandfathers, and in fact, uh, my great-grandfather married a Cherokee Indian, which uh, was a part of the family lineage. My dad was here. All my cousins, we stopped because it was the halfway point from Alabama, where we were last week, in North Carolina, where we're going this week. And we're going into Sanford, as I said, Sanford at the Grace Chapel, two services Sunday morning, 9 and 11, 2 in the evening, a Q&A at the afternoon session, and then a study of God's Word. I want you to come and join us for that. We'll be teaching about prophecy. And at this temporary studio here in Greer, that's what we're doing. And we're now going to bring to this microphone the man who covers geopolitical activities for us, Ken Timmerman. He's so very knowledgeable, and he is able to give us great insight. Ken, I guess the big story has to be what's going on in Russia, Turkey, Syria, and with the Kurds. So let me begin with this. It looks like there was a meeting between Vladimir Putin and Tayyip Erdogan. They're in Russia, and the president of Russia cause Erdogan, president of Turkey, to say, okay, I'll stand down, I'll shut down, at least temporarily, this operation against the Kurds. Now, do you think that's going to be a long-term situation, or could Turkey actually break that ceasefire in the very near future? Well, Jimmy, I think Erdogan is likely to respect this ceasefire because Vladimir Putin, who brokered the deal, does not have to answer to an opposition. He doesn't have to answer to Parliament. He doesn't have to answer to the media. And clearly the Russians are on the way back into the Middle East. This has been Putin's strategy since 2015, when he first deployed troops and his air force into Syria. He is increasingly present in Syria, not just militarily, but diplomatically and economically as well. So this meeting in Sochi on Wednesday where Erdogan agreed to a second ceasefire, a follow-on ceasefire, and these joint patrols for the Russians, I think, is enormously important, strategically important. Uh, remember, for weeks we've been talking about Putin's uh, apparent opposition to Turkey and its role in Syria. Now we see the two of them coming together. So I think this is a very, very important development. Uh, it has not yet become a military cooperation they are on the ground together in a very limited way, but you're going to have Turkish troops with Russian troops side by side in Syria and the Iranians not far away. And indeed, at the same time, the European Union member states are watching this. 
along with the NATO organization, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was brought into existence so that the European Union could have a defense against Russia. But you talk about this meeting with one of the NATO members, Turkey. Boy, this should ring some alarm bells, should it not? Well, well, that's right. And, and Turkey is behaving unlike a NATO ally. I mean, they have clearly violated the NATO treaty. I wrote about this last week in the New York Post. The Article 1 of the North Atlantic Treaty says that member states will attempt to resolve all of their differences through peaceful means. And Erdogan did not do that. He, he said, well, we're going to launch into Syria. We're going to invade Syria. He never sought consultation with his NATO allies. This was not a NATO operation. It's not what NATO countries do. And I think there are a number of people, uh, myself included, that think that uh, Erdogan really needs to be taken to task. Uh, The NATO allies need to consider, weigh the pros and cons of Turkey's continued membership in NATO. Clearly, if you expel Turkey from NATO, that will have huge strategic ramifications. It will probably push Turkey into Russia's arms. But guess what? That's where Turkey is already today. Our problem in the United States is that we have 50 tactical nuclear weapons in the Insulik Air Base uh, in southeastern Turkey, and we need to get those weapons out of there. We probably need to shut down that base. The Germans took their uh, airmen and aircraft out of there last year. We are the last hangers-on. We have a lot of people in the Pentagon, kind of traditional thinkers, if you wish, who continue to believe that Turkey is a NATO ally, and, well, they just need a little, little slap on the wrist and they'll come back and see reason. I don't think that's the case. I think Erdogan has a completely different vision of the world than previous Turkish leaders. He is an Islamist. As you and I have discussed here, he wants to reestablish the caliphate, and I believe uh, he is going to disregard NATO concerns as he pushes ahead. And Ken, I'm exactly where you are on that situation, disagreeing basically with some of those older guys there at the Pentagon. Well, it looks like Russia, Turkey, and Syria, they're somewhat on the same page, but how long do you think that can happen? Well, uh, that's what we're going to see in the coming weeks, is this Turkish incursion and their cooperation with the Russians and the Syrians moving back. Now, this is also a, a side of this that doesn't get a lot of discussion. The Syrian army is moving back to basically control half of the border zone with Turkey, half of that roughly 400-mile-long border. There will be Syrian troops there now for the first time since 2012. The Kurds have agreed to that because they don't want Turkey to come in. Between two evils, they would prefer the Syrian National Army, the actual Syrian army of Bashar al-Assad, to the Turkish army under Erdogan. Turkey has con- is consolidating its positions in the border. They've got these two segments from Mediterranean up to roughly Kobani. Then there's a Syrian buffer zone, and then another area about 100 miles long between Tal Abiyad and Ras Al Ain. Uh, again, that's the central part of the border. I think the Turks are going to stay there as long as they possibly can, uh, and they're going to especially, uh, they have told us, they're going to try to ethnically cleanse those areas, bring in uh, Syrian Arab Muslims to replace the Kurdish population that has fled. Ken, let me ask your opinion. Could Turkey's Syrian policy actually lead to its own destruction? Is that a possibility? Well, I've heard this from Turkish analysts. 
that uh, Erdogan may be overstepping a bit his possibilities here. It, it appears from, again, these are sources inside Turkey, that one of his goals was to fracture the opposition bloc inside Turkey. You have many, believe it or not, many Kurds in Turkey who actually supported the AK party because they identified first as Sunni Muslims, as Islamists, before they identified as Kurds. And so he's trying to, Erdogan is trying to consolidate them in his zone and to break away other non-Kurdish parties from the opposition and bring them into this kind of Turkish nationalist aura. Time will tell. I think this is a dangerous, um, you know, this potential danger here for Erdogan, uh, and he could very well have, um, look, he has ignited a generational conflict for Kurds who are being displaced, the Syrian Christians who are being displaced. He wants to talk about Palestinians. Well, my gosh, he's just created a whole new generation in category of refugees by his actions. Let's talk about those Palestinians just for a moment. It seems like Hamas, which will be located in the Gaza Strip there in the state of Israel, is supporting Tayyip Erdogan in his war. Why would they be doing that? Uh, Erdogan is the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood worldwide. I think it's pretty well acknowledged by now. Why is he the leader? Because he commands a state. He commands an army. Hamas is obviously part of the Muslim Brotherhood, but they don't have the same military capability that Turkey does. So you have this split in the Sunni Muslim world between the Muslim Brotherhood states or groups, Hamas, Turkey, Qatar, and a more traditional Sunni Islamic bloc of Saudi Arabia, UAE, and the Persian Gulf states or the Arabian Gulf states from their point of view. So Hamas is fully behind them. They're, they're supporting Turkey in this. Turkey is supporting Hamas. That is a partnership that I don't see going away anytime soon. And that will enhance what Tayyip Erdogan's ultimate goal would be to revive the old Ottoman Empire and become the caliph, the leader of the caliphate. One final thing for you. Why in the world is Russia, China, and Iran planning a naval operation and exercise together? I mean, it seems like everybody's going to now come together, the ones that are going to be major players in the end times. Yeah, yeah. well, the interesting addition here is China, because Russia has already held exercises with the Iranian Navy in the Persian Gulf region. So now you have China trying to expand its Blue Water Navy. Remember, you know, we talked a lot about their Belt and Roads initiative. They're trying to revive the Silk Road from China all the way to Europe. They're expanding into Africa. They're going in the, around the Horn of Africa as well. They're in Djibouti. And so this is their effort to gain a sea hold, a, a foothold, right, in the Persian Gulf region by working with the Iranians and the Russians. I think it is strategically significant, and it shows that China is on the march just as Russia is on the march. And that's going to continue on as well. I read the last chapter. China's going to be a player. That's Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. And, of course, Russia and Iran at the beginning of the tribulation period, the major players from Ezekiel chapter 38. Friends, if you've listened to this interview, the conversation I had with Ken Timmerman, you're much aware of the reason I bring him to these microphones each and every week to update us on all these geopolitical activities unfolding. Ken, thank you for your expertise in these areas. Thank you for being available, and we'll have another conversation next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. It's always a pleasure. God bless. 
We're going to take a break when we come back. A Middle East news update, further expansion of it from David Dolan. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here in Temporary Studios in Greer, South Carolina. Now, you may never have heard of that city, except if you were listening in our first segment of the broadcast, you heard me talking with Ken Timmerman and telling you I was traveling from Alabama to North Carolina for meetings, and we had to stop at the halfway point. That's Greer, South Carolina. But I kind of like that because it's where my family is all from, my dad All of his family, my great-grandfather, and everybody else down the road came to Greer, South Carolina, just outside of Greenville. So we stopped here, set up temporary studios, going to see some of my cousins tonight. We're excited about having a meal with them. Uh, But want you to know that we're going over to and into North Carolina for a meeting at the Grace Chapel In Sanford, North Carolina, Joel Murr is the pastor. We're going to have a couple of services on Sunday morning. And then in the evening, a prophecy Q&A, an hour before the regular service, and that'll be a time of study of Bible prophecy. Come join us as we look at the prophetic word of God. There's so many things happening today in our world, in particular in the Middle Eastern region, Uh, that would help us to understand we better get in the book and we better recognize what the Lord has told us about the end times. Now, in light of that statement, that's why we go to David Dolan on a weekly basis. Over 30 years as a journalist in the Middle East, and David is very knowledgeable of what is happening. 
Uh, David, let me get started right away. The Israeli Defense Force Chief of Staff, that's the highest-ranking military man in Israel, says that all the fronts of Israel are fragile and they could deteriorate into a war. Now, you've said that all along. Talk to me about this statement from the IDF chief. Well, of course, Jimmy, the evidence on the ground is substantial that both the situation around the Gaza Strip, but even more so, as Kohavi said, the situation in the north of Israel, the border with Lebanon, and more importantly now, the border with Syria, where Iran is entrenched, and then, of course, also trouble in Iraq, that these northern and southern areas are indeed very, very tense, could deteriorate, as he said, into a confrontation at any moment. Now, this isn't news. We've been talking about this, like I just said, for some time, but we're getting more and more official statements now from Israeli leaders, military and political, to this effect. Prime Minister Netanyahu mentioned again this week the very tense situation in the region and that Israel is watching very carefully what's going on. Kohavi was speaking, Jimmy, though, as part of a unveiling of the new plan for the next decade, Israel's military plans for the next decade to begin in 2020. We're almost upon that. And he outlined a number of things that they would be doing, acquiring more weapon systems, more precision-guided missiles for the army forces on the ground, more drones. He also talked about that they are increasing their preparations for urban warfare. And as I've been mentioning many times, Israel expects the next war to be not just along fronts, along the northern and southern fronts, but to be in the cities and towns, both by means of rockets, missiles, drones, attacks from Iran and its surrogates, Hezbollah, Hamas, and others possibly as well, upon the cities, but then uh, forces in those cities, Arab forces in those cities, Palestinians uh, joining in the fight on the ground. So they're looking at all-out warfare, as Prime Minister Netanyahu has also stated in recent months, that would be all over the place. So there would be nowhere that would not be involved in it. And, of course, this very much reflects what happened in both uh, 1948 and 1967, but especially 48 and 49, when uh, Israel's independence war was literally fought from town to town and city to city, but without much in the way of rockets and missiles coming in. This time that would be the predominant feature, if you will, and Kohavi's just explaining that. But he uh, did reiterate that Israel is ready to face all of the challenges up ahead, but certainly there are many, and it's a serious time indeed. And in fact, Israel is on high alert because of the possibility of Iran sending those missiles you've been talking about, or drones, they're into Israel for an attack, so that's got them at this point in time on high alert. Well, what about the fact that Jared Kushner's on his way to the Middle East? It almost makes me want to laugh to think about a peace plan uh, that may be coming together or it may be in question. You do not believe there's going to be any type of a successful peace plan between the Israelis and Palestinians, do you? And when you answer that, is there a reason for Kushner coming to the Middle East? Well, Jimmy, the facts on the ground, again, are that we're facing imminent war, not uh, regional peace or Israeli-Arab peace. Uh, the Palestinians have already totally rejected President Trump's announcement that he would bring this peace plan. They know enough 
about the details to have already said they cannot accept it. They reject it completely. So that's one thing. The Israeli political scene continues to be extremely turbulent. Uh, We have an acting prime minister right now. The opposition leader has been given the mandate to form a new government this week. So we have an acting prime minister for the time being, meaning he and his government would be very unprepared to take any major decisions on any peace plans that would be unveiled. We have chaos in the United States in the Trump administration itself. So just a lot of factors there, Jimmy, that say this is not the moment for a peace plan, but they've been working on this at the White House for many, many years now, for three years now, and Gerald Kirshner in particular uh, doing that. The reason he's coming, well, I guess he's going to continue to proceed, as at least what I'm reading, with the probing to see, you know, who he can get on board. So far, Jimmy, we really just know that the uh, Arab Gulf states, uh, the Saudis and the Arab Gulf states are the only ones that seem to be receptive to this. Now, Netanyahu is as well, but a very tentative way, and again, Again, he doesn't have the authority right now to take any major decisions. So I would be surprised if it's even unveiled, even though it was announced it would be unveiled soon after the second round of Israeli elections. Now we're facing the prospect of a third round, possibly next March of elections, if Benny Gantz cannot form a government, which seems very, very likely. So uh, just no grounds right now for any delicate moves on the peace floor and uh, no partners to dance with. So many factors there, Jimmy, pointing to the likely unsuccess, if you will, that this is not going to succeed at this time. And again, I'm even doubtful that the White House will go ahead and unveil the plan, at least until uh, there is a stable, not acting government in Israel, and that may be some months away. David, you know, when we're talking about peace, let me tell you that one of the peace treaties of the past may actually be coming apart. It's the 25th anniversary of the peace agreement signed between Jordan and Israel back in October of 1994. And uh, the Jordanians are saying it's cold and getting colder. Does that mean it could possibly come apart? And what's causing that? Well, Jimmy, you remember that from the very beginning, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a major force, opposed the peace treaty from the get-go. They continue to do that today. They're watching the instability all around. The Jordanians are very, very concerned that there might be an attack from Iraq, uh, an Iranian attack upon the Jordanian government, too, trying to take out all the moderate pro-American governments in the region, the Saudis included, the Israelis also included, So they're looking at that right now, and um, they're not very happy with the lack of progress on the ground, the Jordanians. And King uh, Abdullah is, uh, again, challenged immensely by these other forces all around him, war to the north, war to the east, potential war to the west in Israel, and potential war to the south in Saudi Arabia. He's right in the middle of all of that. So just so many reasons that the Jordanians are not, again, looking towards peace, but are looking towards possibly the breakup of the peace process. And they've complained a lot about Israeli actions. They haven't liked the fact that more Jews are praying on the Temple Mount. Record numbers, in fact, in the past year, they are supposedly in control of the WAF there, the Muslim Authority there. They don't like what they're seeing on the ground there. They don't like Netanyahu's declaration earlier this year that he would annex 
uh, most of Judea and Samaria and all Jewish communities, and none would be uh, abandoned. They don't like that at all. So there's a lot of straits on the peace process for sure. And that peace process may well come apart. I was there. I was there for that historic event when they did that in the Arava, the southern portion of the Jordan Valley. And I saw then King Hussein of Jordan and Yitzhak Rabin, Prime Minister of Israel, sign that peace treaty. But now, seemingly, it could come apart. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East for us, he stays on top of these issues that are so key for our understanding of the end times. David, it's just a very important time when we're able to get a hold of you and and talk to you about these events. We thank you so very much for doing that, and I'm hoping and praying we'll be able to have another conversation next week. I'm glad to do it, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Winky Madad, he's going to talk to us about Simcha Torah. Now, if you're a Christian, you need to hear what Winky says about this very special Jewish holy day, and also he'll give us an update on the election process in Israel. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung, I'm here in Greer, South Carolina. We're here in temporary studios, as I mentioned earlier, and this is the hometown of my dad, my grandfather, all my cousins, and my grandmother, and everybody lived here in Greer. So uh, we had to stop and stay over a night before we go into Sanford, North Carolina, at the Grace Chapel to be all day Sunday in a one-day prophecy conference with Pastor Murr. Pastor Murr is a longtime friend of us. We're looking forward to seeing all the people there at Grace Chapel. Well, as promised, Winky Madad is coming to the broadcast table. Winky, I want to talk about the political process that is going on in Israel today. Boy, if that's not a Baligan, I don't know what is. But before we do that, right after the Feast of Tabernacles, which just concluded a couple of days ago, there's another Jewish holy day, a one-day holy day, which is called Simcha Torah. Will you please explain what that is and what the Jewish people do on that day? Well, Jimmy, actually in the Bible, the holiday of the Feast of Tabernacles had an extra day tacked onto it, uh, which was called Festival Day. And our rabbis sort of give it a, shall we say, a mythical understanding 
in that uh, one more time God says, let's all be happy together before the holiday seasons have completed, uh, the month of Tishrei is over, you all go back to your villages, all the pilgrims return home, those who lived abroad, and I'm talking about the Second Temple period in Babylon, in Egypt, and other places, and be joyful. And that was turned into what we call Simchat Torah, the joy of the Torah, especially in the lands of diaspora, which adds on an extra day. And I'm not going to get into that, but in, in outside of Israel, it's eight days of the holiday. I and my family and friends, everybody else here celebrates seven days. And that last day sort of became not only Atzeret, but they added on one to celebrate the joy of the Torah, and because the reading of the Torah, the, the, the cycle, the annual cycle of reading weekly portions of the Torah ends at Sukkot, and immediately, we, the same day, the same day, within three minutes, we're off opening up the book of Genesis that we never end the Torah. It's always continuous. And so in that sense, we celebrate finishing ending the cycle, and immediately beginning it once again. You know, that's an exciting example for the Christian community. The Jewish people are talking about a daily reading of the Torah, which would be the first five books of the Old Testament as it relates to a Christian's understanding. But they're continually reading through the Torah on a yearly basis, an annual basis. They read the entire book. Now, this is a night of celebration. They dance with the Torah. They're excited about the joy of being able to read the Bible, aren't they? Yes. I mean, to those who are aware, um, the, the Bible for us, the Torah, as we call it, in the Torah scroll, which is written on parchment, and is very carefully copied so that not one iota of a mistake can be made anywhere in the thousands and tens of thousands of letters that are in there, is it, sacred. It, for us, this is not only tradition, it's not only a book that you read from, especially for, of course, more observant Jews, but even for almost everybody else, it's the book of life. It gives us everything that we need to know, to do, and to, uh, to, to think about ourselves and the nations around us and everything else, from eating to sleeping to celebrating holidays, interpersonal relationships and, and relationships with non-Jews, and everything else is in there. So for us, those who celebrate the holiday properly take joy in the fact that we have that Torah. And so uh, we dance around with it, and it gets very excited. In cities, sometimes synagogues organize in convoys, if I can use the word, and, and travel and visit other synagogues. And sometimes you can see in the city square. And that, of course, at the end of the Sukkot holiday, uh, especially for those uh, who came from abroad, we have a second night in which music can be played here in Israel, live music, which can't be done on the holiday. We sing until we're a horse, almost, in that sense. So it is, for those who have experienced it, either standing on the side or in some congregations taking part in, in, the, uh, in the festivities, it's, it's not only exciting, it, it's, it's uplifting. And my Christian friends who are listening to this broadcast in the conversation between me and Winky Madad, please take heed of their love of the Bible. That should be our love, and on a daily basis, go to the pages of it 
to be able to live our life. What an example the Jewish people are to us today. Well, let's get now to the mundane things of electing another government, another prime minister for the Jewish state of Israel. How's the election process unfolding? Looks like the prime minister has returned his mandate to President Rivlin, so he's not any longer working on trying to put a coalition government together, and uh, it's been now given to Benny Gantz, the leader of the Blue-White Party. Is that correct? Did the prime minister give back that mandate? And, Winky, was that admission of failure, of a loss, or was it a strategic move? Yes, Jimmy, you're factually correct. What has happened is that Mr. Netanyahu could not form a coalition government. I have to remind you and our listeners that no one party here in Israel has ever had 61 votes or seats in the parliament, should I say properly, and therefore you need a partner, one, two, or five, or six, depending on what you want. And so Netanyahu could not gain the necessary 61. He returned, as you called it, the mandate to the president. The president now goes to Mr. Gantz, and Gantz has 28 days, or 21 days, I think, in order to try to make his own coalition. He has a worse problem than Netanyahu because he has lesser coalition numbers, and among them are votes from Arab parties. Now, I want to make sure that people do not misunderstand. These are not Arabs who are pro-Israel. These are Arabs who identify very much with the Palestinian Authority. We have a very easy democratic system here in Israel. Uh, and so they are looked upon as not uh, really loyal, I could say, in a general sense, to Israel's raison d'etre as the Zionist and Jewish state. And so he has a, a bigger problem. He might try to set up a minority government. And for those who've been following our conversations over the past few weeks, Jimmy, I mentioned that at the beginning as a possibility for Mr. Netanyahu as well, but it didn't go that way. And so now we're going to wait and see, can Mr. Gantz come up and form his own unity or coalition government? It's very, very problematic because the linchpin, Mr. Lieberman from the uh, Russian uh, Israel is our house party, is being very obdurate and very obstinate in taking extreme anti-religious stance. Well, that's probably most of the problem as it relates to Netanyahu being able to form that coalition government. It may well be a problem for Benny Gantz of the Blue and White Party as well, but my concern would be if he were to bring in those Arab political leaders that are a part of that coalition. What do they have? About 13 different Knesset seats, and that could round off and give them the simple majority of 61 to form the coalition. But that would be a dangerous move, would it not? Not only would it be dangerous, but it would, first of all, I cannot see three members of that Arab joint list really entering the government, because they are very, very anti-government Israel, and so it would be a death knell for them within their own uh, electorate. Uh, the rest of them are of varying degrees, extreme, radical, or anti. Pick your uh, adjective there on that one. It really would upset the the apple cart, uh, the figurative apple cart here, especially since Gantz and his fellow members are not that left-wing. They're just anti-Netanyahu. 
they're the former heads of the army. Uh, they've probably killed more Arabs than Mr. Netanyahu has. If I can borrow a phrase from one of the Arabs, was very angry with Netanyahu and Mr. Bennett at one time. So uh, I don't think that's going to go down very good for his own support. I'm talking about Mr. Gantz now. If he fails, then he'll have to knuckle under and agree to Netanyahu's original ideas about what a national coalition agreement should be. And then that would have thus been a strategic move by the prime minister to allow that to happen, and then he could come back and put that unity government together. What happens if they're not able to do it? If Gantz can't put a government together, what then will take place in the political arena there in Israel? Well, the first stage is can anyone else get 61 members of Knesset? I don't think that's possible. The next move is to call elections again. And it's, it, we have a joke here about the Jewish grandmother. You'll do your homework again and again until you get it right. <laughs> and so, the, you know, this is the third time. Do you want to play around and divide your votes fairly ev- evenly between blue and white and the Likud? Or do you want a government? It's, now I think the politicians can turn around and say, listen, we've tried our best with, with the deck that you've dealt us. You want to go to elections a fourth time? then vote exactly how you did the last two times. If not, let's get things correct. Vote for either blue or white, all he could, and let's get a move on with the government and business. Winky, what does the body politic of Israel want? I'm talking about the the electorate itself. They do not want to go to a third or fourth vote, do they? I don't think they do. It's a lot of money involved, of course, because you have to completely reprint up ballots and, and pay people, thousands of people, to man the, the electoral polls. Here, it's all done by hand, uh, Jimmy, not like in the States where you enter a booth and, and uh, I don't even know anymore. I, when I voted last time, you put down a little lever, and then when you pulled up the curtain to get out, all the levers went up and it was registered. So I don't know what the system is there, but here in Israel, it's pieces of paper inside an envelope. And, and that costs money, and it takes a lot of time to count, and all sorts of things. So uh, if they don't want an economic uh, unnecessary burden on that, I think that the politicians should get their act together. Maybe the electorate can pressure them. Uh, maybe the press could pressure them to, to uh, take a less strong stance on their ideological and political positions and get together. Well, in the meantime, you still have a temporary government that's led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, and therefore there is an operation of a political apparatus there in Israel should there be an attack or some other emergency come about. Is that correct? Oh, yes, that that is going on. The only real problem is, of course, new budgetary uh, expenditures cannot be done because the Knesset is not ready to authorize either a plus or a minus in terms of funding the defense ministry or the education ministry or or the social welfare ministry. These things now have been locked in to the last year's budget. And if we continue like that, uh, some ministries are going to suffer financial uh, strictures. Remember, God has brought into existence human government back in the book of Genesis and the Torah, uh, there in chapter 9 and verse 6. And he uses human government to direct these nations of the world. There needs to be a human government 
a coalition of some type there in Israel for their future. Winky, thank you for trying to help us figure all of this out. We hear the news. We watch what's going on there in Israel because of the networks that are covering it here. But it's great to hear it from you because you're on top of it. You know how that apparatus works, and it's so great to have you reporting to us for this coverage of the election process. I guess we'll have to have another conversation real soon to see how this all works out. But thank you so much, Winky. Jimmy, thank you for having me on. It's been a privilege and an honor to help you and our listeners understand what's going on here on the ground, taking a message from up above in the skies. Very important conversation with Winky Madad, especially that part about Simcha Torah, where the Jewish people daily read from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They do that annually, and then on Sipka Torah, they conclude their year's reading and start it over again the same day, have a celebration, dancing with the Torah in their arms, that is in a scroll form, of course, and a wonderful blessing, and then an update on the political situation there in Israel. Not much to update us with, but we'll stay on top of that story with Winky Medad. Well, we're going to another very important region of the world. We're talking about the European Union. The man who covers that for us lived in Brussels, Belgium, which is headquarters for the European Union, for over 30 years. His name is John Rood, and we're so grateful to have him available to give us the latest information. In fact, John, let's go to the Middle East to some extent, Tayyip Erdogan, who is, of course, the president of Turkey. His summit with Vladimir Putin should actually ring alarm bells as it relates to NATO since Turkey is a member of NATO and, of course, NATO established for the purpose of protecting the European Union from Russia. Doesn't sound like a a member of NATO should be meeting with the Russian leader, does it? No, this has been a point of contention now for a number of years, but it's more and more pronounced. Turkey became a member of NATO back in 1952, and it was more or less a buffer with Russia and the West. Now we have that Turkey is making agreements on their own with Russia, working on splitting up some of the jurisdiction territories of Syria. And so Russia is being very close to Turkey, and it's raising its profile as a power broker in the Middle East. And so we're seeing that Russia is working towards a weakening U.S. influence in NATO, which is happening here before our eyes. There has been a U.S. senator that has come out and said to suspend Turkey from NATO. This would be very, very dramatic measure, but um, I'm sure behind the closed doors there's a lot of talk on how to deal with Turkey at this moment. Its alignment with Russia, as we know, is prophetically significant. And it appears to be stronger and stronger. In 2017, John, President Trump recognized Jerusalem as the political capital of the Jewish state of Israel. Many other nations around the world have done that. But one of the EU members, Germany, which is led by Chancellor Angela Merkel, is refusing to recognize Jerusalem as its capital for the Jewish state, even in opposition to our own party. What do we know about that? Very important uh, development here is that 
the youth division of Angela Merkel's party called the Youth Union of Germany. It's 105,000 members, so this is not a small group. They passed a resolution at their last meeting entitled Recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's Capital. And so they didn't uh, follow the party line, so to speak, and uh, Merkel's government has come out and said the relocation of the embassy to Jerusalem would cause uh, problems it's categorically refused. So disappointing move on, on her part, as we know, Angela Mer- Merkel is a daughter of a pastor from East Germany as well. This has been a very contentious issue, of course, with the placement of uh, embassies in Jerusalem. Germany at this moment is not getting on board, even though the young party has come out with this dramatic resolution which was passed. Yes, uh, very interesting development there in Germany, and especially in light of their World War II history and the Nazi regime. In fact, uh, that was a very historic pronouncement by President Trump when he did name Jerusalem as the political capital of the Jewish state of Israel. John, you're updating us on the European Union, which is an essential that we have each and every week. We appreciate it so much. We'll talk again next week. My pleasure. Look forward to what's coming up. Very interesting conversation with John Rood. He's the man who covers the European Union for us. And talking about the situation there, the meeting, the summit somewhat there in Russia between Vladimir Putin and then Tayyip Erdogan, the leader of Turkey and Russia getting together. NATO is paying very close attention to what's going on there. We'll stay on top of that story with John. Right now we bring to the microphone a man who has a day job at the Pentagon. His purpose there is to work in strategic planning. He also teaches over at the War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and travels around the world doing much of the same type of activity with our military personnel someplace in this world. And Bob, you've written several books, one of them, and I'm going to just give the short title. You can give the full title if you will. It's entitled Future Wars. And since your background is in strategic planning and teaching at the War College, you need to know something about these future wars and how they're going to be fought. That's the basic theme of the book, is it not? That's correct, Jimmy. The entire title is Future Wars, Super Soldiers, Terminators, Cyberspace, and the National Security Strategy for the 21st Century Combat. So it's a long title, but it really talks about uh, what's beyond the horizon. You know, as you consider, there are a number of emerging trends in the world, supercomputing, nanotechnology, medicine, genomics, renewable energy, autonomous vehicles and drones, advanced robotics, advanced materials, 3D printers, and the list goes on. Most Americans hear these things on television, but don't apply them into the context, certainly, of the future battlefield. And and that's something that we at the Pentagon must do. You know, we look at things like machine learning, deep learning, artificial general intelligence. When you think about artificial general intelligence, you're thinking about a free-thinking machine that can replace a human being's reasoning and thinking and learning. Uh, And that's the thing that we're most concerned about, and it has serious ethical challenges. 
fact is, though, that our enemies, the Chinese and the Russians and a few others, are actually investing in that sort of technology and something that we need to be concerned about. Well, actually, that's the reason I wanted to get a hold of you and have this conversation. Last Sunday, I was watching a television program, used to be entitled Madam Secretary, now it's Madam President. And the star of the program has come from the position of Secretary of State over to the President. They had a pretty important discussion as to how they were going to deal with a terrorist overseas, whether they should release a SEAL team or just use a big weapon to try to wipe everybody out there, a lot of collateral damage, or use AI, artificial intelligence. Now, you just mentioned that. And one of their questions is, what about the fact, can we not control these weapons? Uh, No human being can tell it what to do. Is that basically the case? Well, it depends upon how it's designed. You know, the idea of autonomous weapons without a human loop or an interface uh, is something that we don't allow by law in the United States. But I will tell you, autonomous weapons are becoming uh, just as common as the Kalashnikovs of tomorrow. In other words, you see AK-47s and Kalashnikovs on every battlefield of the world today, of which there are at least 55 I'm aware of. And, you know, they're going to be replaced by the drones and cruise missiles and things that crawl upon the ground that don't look like human beings because they aren't, but they have a certain amount of artificial intelligence. Now, if we design these things so that, you know, they can learn and they can think and decide on their own. In other words, they're truly autonomous, robotic forces, uh, what we would call centaur warfighting, uh, could emerge. And that's something we're concerned about. And now, of course, you have kind of the, the cross between the human being and the machine, and there's a lot of work done on that. We have exoskeletons that we fit over soldiers that allows them to pick up heavy weights and to run at excessive speeds. We have all sorts of materials to help people heal or stop bleeding rapidly. And so these are logical things to do. It's, it's what we're looking at beyond this, where we're talking about technological singularity, uh, which is basically the human intelligence, which is uh, being taken over by an entity that does not have DNA, it's not human, and it starts to create itself. Now, we're not there, but we're rapidly moving in the direction in which artificially intelligent beings, whatever you want to call them, are becoming incredibly capable. Now, we need AI to do mundane things. What we don't need AI to do is to recreate itself over and over again so that its IQ can grow to 5,000, whereas most humans are in the 100 range. Uh, So these things can do that if we... Permit it, and that's why this whole idea of supercomputing and nanotechnology is so significant today. Well, it sounds like a Star Wars movie to me. It's really high above my pay grade to understand even what you're talking about. But as one in strategic planning, you need to plan for those future wars, and this is the future, as you're seemingly telling us right now. How far advanced are they as it relates to, say, Russia and China as compared to the United States? 
Well, I would argue the Chinese are probably ahead of us in artificial intelligence, and that's very worrisome. They're investing heavily to realize hegemony over the world uh, by the year 2050, which is President Xi's ambition in the China dream, which is his strategy. Uh, I would argue that September the 14th, when the Saudi facilities were attacked by drones and cruise missiles, is just the foretaste of what could be in the future. The technology is rapidly coming to fruition and available not only to nation states, but to individuals and terrorist groups. And so something like that could well happen. I know the Israelis are very concerned about a future Iranian attack being launched from Syria or Lebanon, and they're not only missiles, but they're drones, and there are other capabilities that are hard to predict and hard to counter. So this is upon us, and it's something that we need to take seriously, and our ability to counter our enemies as they develop similar technologies. Well, that technology is what will be used in those future wars, and you can rest assured they are coming. Jesus said there will be wars, rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. Bob, thank you so much. I wanted to have this conversation. I wanted our people to eavesdrop on this conversation so they could better have an understanding of what's going on. Uh, that book is Future Wars. I'm not going to give the full title. It's available at Amazon.com. Go get your copy of it. It'll be a great read. Bob, thank you so very much, my good friend. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again real soon. Well, thank you, Jimmy. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, our last half hour... Uh, David James is standing by. We're going to be talking with David about the conversation going on between Beth Moore and John MacArthur. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome back to Prophecy Today weekend. We move into the last half hour We'll be talking in just a moment with David James, and our subject will be John MacArthur and Beth Moore. You do not want to miss that conversation. So glad you could join us today. Do me a favor, if you will, go to my homepage on my website, prophecytoday.com. When you're there, scroll down on the left-hand column. You'll find my poll question. want you to answer it. The poll question today Simcha Torah is a Jewish holiday when the Jews celebrate their annual reading on a daily basis of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. Do you believe that this Jewish practice should be exercised by Christians with a daily reading of the Bible as well? Now that's the poll question. Please respond. And by the way, I would suggest a daily reading of the Bible is a very important exercise in your walk with Jesus Christ. We're going to be in meetings over in Sanford, North Carolina. We're here in Greer, South Carolina. We'll leave and drive over after the broadcast is over. We'll be there for two services on Sunday morning. Pastor Joel Murr would love for you to come and join us as we study the prophetic word of God. We now bring to these microphones David James. It's that time of the week when David and I get together at the broadcast table to discuss an issue that is really very important 
to the body of Christ and to each Christian. We want to have an opportunity to give you what the biblical respective of that issue is so it will assist in your walk with Jesus Christ. David, great to have you along. And I see it's just at that time of the week we catch you at a conference there in Indianapolis where you're teaching God's plan through the ages once again. I want you to take just a brief moment and remind our listeners of what that course is all about because that's the course you're going to be teaching at our School of Prophets Conference in Chattanooga upcoming the first week of December. So just give us a reminder of what the course is about, and we want to encourage everybody to come hear you teach that course. This is a revised, brand-new edition of it, is it not? Yes, it is. The way I describe the course is to say we'll be examining God's plan through the ages from eternity past to eternity future, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 in 10 hours or less, and this weekend I'll be doing it in just seven hours, uh, which is quite a challenge. Uh, I start off with a brief overview of dispensationalism and then move to looking at God's program in history within the framework of dispensational theology. And you know, the foundation for the course is interpreting Scripture using a literal grammatical, historical hermeneutic. And when we do that, we see that God has a plan for both Israel and the Church, and we see that history is going somewhere, and that is the establishment of God's kingdom of righteousness. Uh, I've taught this course somewhere around 70 times over the last 20 years, and this will be the fifth time I've taught it this year alone. Next month, I'll be teaching it uh, at the New Hampshire State Prison for men, and then again in Hungary, and then, as you mentioned, I'll be teaching it for the eighth time this year at the School of Prophets Conference in December. Well, we're looking forward to that time. I'll be concluding my three-part study of going through the entire Bible, each book of the Bible, and looking at the prophetic passages in those books. We'll be looking at the 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament and then the book of Revelation. These two courses are very key if you want to understand Bible prophecy and be able to go into God's Word and interpret it. So if you want information, go to my website, prophecytoday.com. There's a banner, a rotating banner at the top of my home page. It'll give you all the information, what the dates are, the cost, how to register, everything else. And by the way, we'll have live streaming. Available for those who are not able to make it, you can sign up for that as well. Well, David, since last weekend, there's been a firestorm all across the Internet because of a comment that John MacArthur made at a conference concerning the popular Bible teacher Beth Moore. Talk to us about that. Well, it's been all over social media and in many articles reporting on the situation. And so on the one side, there's been a firestorm of reaction to what John MacArthur said. Then on the other side, there's been strong reaction to those who've taken John MacArthur to task by those defending him. And this happened this past weekend at a conference celebrating his 50 years as pastor of Grace Community Church. Now, Todd Friel, who's the host of Wretched Radio, started off part of a panel discussion by saying this, I will say a word, and the three of you, the, the three men on the stage, the three of you need to give a word or a pithy response to the word. Are you ready? Then John MacArthur said, I feel like I'm being set up, which elicited a ripple of laughter through the audience. And one of the other guys on the platform, I think it was Phil Johnson, said, that's always the case with Todd. Watch out for him. He'll try to embarrass you. Then Friel said, 
Let's begin with an easy one. The word is Beth Moore, and laughter broke out again, and MacArthur responded with, uh, that's two words, and so he was clearly in the moment. And then Friel mentioned that the last time he did a word association game with John MacArthur, the name person wrote a book about it, and Friel said, we don't want that, which was followed by more laughter. Then John MacArthur said, I was thinking of the same word, go home. Now, that statement brought down the house, and then Friel, who was laughing, said, well, I see we're warmed up. And then MacArthur went on to say, there's no case that can be made biblically for a woman preacher, period, paragraph, end of discussion, and this was met by applause as the tone became more serious. Well, actually, I see that there is a bit of a pithiness and a humor there on the stage. Uh, I don't know if that's the best approach here, but... Did anyone else on the stage weigh in on Beth Moore? And did MacArthur have anything else to say? Or did he just leave it at that? Well, Friel asked Phil Johnson, who's the executive director of Grace to You, if he were to describe more with a single word, what would he say? And Johnson said this, the word that comes to my mind is narcissistic. I think the first time I saw her, I thought this is what it looks like to preach herself rather than Christ. And then he went on to say, in fact, she has said that. She said, I read the Bible and I try to find myself in the narrative. I put myself in the narrative and that's exactly what she does. Then as Freel was about to move on, uh, John MacArthur said this, I would just add one thing. And again, there was laughter from the audience, but he was serious at this point. And he said, just because you have the skills to sell jewelry on the TV sales channel doesn't mean you should be preaching. And then he went on to say, there are people who have certain talking skills, natural abilities to sell, to have energy and personality and all that, but that doesn't qualify you to preach. Then Friel responded by saying, I'm perceiving this is actually troubling you. And MacArthur replied, it profoundly troubles me because I think the church is caving in to women preachers. Just the other day, the same thing happened with Paula White. A whole bunch of leading evangelicals endorsed her new book. She's a heretic and a prosperity preacher, three times married. What are they thinking? And, and then uh, MacArthur went on from there. So, David, what are your personal thoughts concerning what happened, including MacArthur's initial response, as well as the main points that he was making? Well, first of all, uh, you know, I like to have fun as much as anyone, uh, but I think when you're dealing with serious issues, we need to be careful, especially with mockery and sarcasm. I frequently warn about false teaching and false religious ideas, but I caution my students all the time not to engage in mockery and sarcasm, because the fact is most people hold their beliefs both sincerely and emotionally, no matter how bizarre those beliefs might be. And, you know, Jimmy, our listeners know that you and I addressed problem of false teachers and bad theology, and we do it head-on all the time. But it's not enough for us to be right. We must be right in the right way, or we end up being in the wrong ourselves. And when MacArthur expressed his concerns about Beth Moore in a serious way, I think he was 100% on target. I completely agree that Scripture doesn't allow women to teach the Bible or to exercise spiritual authority over men. But Todd Friel had set him up, and that's what Friel does. And he was going for the laugh, and he got it. And when MacArthur said, go home, I actually think he played into Friel's hands, and it felt like he was playing for the laugh, too. I don't know what he intended. I don't know his heart. But the audience obviously thought it was funny. 
And when he said that giftedness to sell jewelry on TV doesn't mean you should be preaching, I thought that came across as somewhat mocking, whether that was what was in his heart or not. And I don't think MacArthur's position itself is what caused the firestorm, because his views were already well-known. Rather, I think it was the laughing by Friel, the two zingers by MacArthur, and then the response of the audience that set off this firestorm. David, before we get to an evaluation of Beth Moore's ministry and the heart of what John MacArthur actually said, what are some of the reactions on both sides of this issue that you may have been able to see there on the Internet? Well, among the first high-profile leaders to respond was J.D. Greer, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, Beth Moore is a member of an SBC church, Bayou City Fellowship in Houston, Texas, where her son-in-law is pastor. And Greer weighed in with a tweet writing, Dear at Beth Moore, you're welcome in our home anytime, apparently meaning his church. Uh, a bookstore owner in Ontario pulled all of MacArthur's books and said, This weekend, things on Twitter really blew up with the misogyny of John MacArthur. I'm not by any means a Beth Moore fan, but his go-home comment to her has gone viral and not in a good way. My feeling is it's MacArthur who should go. And then a woman told a news site that MacArthur's response was the last straw for her husband, and apparently he's leaving the church altogether, and he said this, if that's what the fruit of his ministry looks like, I went out. Now, many others have gone after MacArthur as well, and and not just because of his views concerning women preaching and teaching. Even some who agree with him biblically think he should apologize for some of what he said. Now, on the other side, MacArthur has a lot of supporters who not only agree with his views, but also defend the way he expressed them last weekend, and they have cited Jesus and Paul's use of sarcasm at times. Now, a pastor who attended the conference wrote an article on Facebook in which he defended MacArthur and said that people were getting up on how he said what he did while missing the importance of the substance of what he said. And I ended up in a fairly protracted back and forth on that particular Facebook thread because I suggested that MacArthur had committed an unforced error because of his tone, and I got a lot of pushback, even though I made it clear that I agreed with him biblically. David, that's really interesting that you agreed biblically with him, but the the method of giving the message forward was probably the problem. David, as we wrap it up for today, what are some of the concerns that many have with Beth Moore And how should we look at this biblically? Well, I've already pointed out one of the main concerns, and that is that Beth Moore is preaching and teaching men in sports arenas and in large churches around the country. And the Southern Baptist Convention's statement of doctrinal beliefs affirms that while men and women are created equal, they have different roles in marriage, family, and the church. Uh, The technical term for this view is called complementarianism. And Paul makes it clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that uh, women are not to be teaching the Bible or theology, or in a position of authority over men. Paul wrote this, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And based on my research, Beth Moore claims that Jesus talks to her, and she recounts the exact words exchanged between the two of them, and he sometimes and this is her words, calls her honey and babe when they talk. 
She claims to get revelation, knowledge, and directions from God that she records and speaks. She says she's a visual person, so he often speaks to her through visions and by putting pictures in her head. She regularly partners with charismatics, and she promotes contemplative prayer. So unfortunately, Beth Moore holds to quite a bit of bad theology, is mystical in practice, and stands in opposition to the Word of God when it comes to the role of women in the church. And folks, I hope that you've listened to the entire conversation we had, not just uh, what we think about the way John MacArthur communicated this information to the body of Christ, but also uh, the problems and concerns that the body of Christ should have about the teaching of Beth Moore. Now, we probably will receive some email response, David's We'll be ready to respond to those if they should come. But thank you for spending the time to research this. And, you know, we're very contemporary here on the broadcast. We want to be on top of the main, most important, most visible issues I think we've done at this time. Thank you, David. We'll have another conversation next week. Thanks, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to take my Bible, open it up. We'll take a look at the book. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of six to ten hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we brought to my broadcast table my broadcast partners with very important reports on current events happening around this world. Now, these are reports which are a must for you to hear because of the information they will give to you. 
If you missed any of these excellent reports, go to my website, prophecytoday.com, and then to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, where we have archived these reports. You can listen to them, and then please tell a friend what they need to hear as well in this information that we pass along. Again, that address, prophecytoday.com, then to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. Well, today you would have heard on the broadcast, if you were able to stay for the 90 minutes that we requested you give us, these reports from our broadcast partners. For example, Ken Timmerman, he covers geopolitical activities for us, and he talked about Russia forcing Turkey to stand down on the Kurds. I want to remind you that Russia and Turkey are both in Bible prophecy. They're key players. Russia, in fact, will become the major player in the Middle East. Now, that does fit into the prophetic passages in the Word of God. For example, Russia is referred to as Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 2. And for foundational information, you would have to go back to Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 to 5, where it mentions Magog, and then Meshach and Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. David Dolan, he talked to us about the Israeli Defense Force Chief of Staff. That's the number one military leader in the state of Israel. He has given the government of Israel a report that the Israeli borders are fragile and could deteriorate into war. You know, Israel is in a bad neighborhood. You have 7 million Jews living now in Israel, surrounded by some 450 million Muslims who would like to wipe them off the face of the earth. In fact, that is the scenario that is laid down there in Psalm chapter 83 and verse 4. That verse reports that they come out of a council meeting and their statement will be, let's wipe Israel off the face of the earth, that her name be forgotten forever. Winky Madad gave us a report about the election update, but before we talked about the political process in Israel, Winky explained Simcha Torah. That is a special Jewish holy day when the Jewish people who have been reading on a daily basis for the last year the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, they do this on a daily basis, and at the end of a year reading, they then celebrate on Simcha Torah. In fact, they will lift up the Torah high in the air. They will dance with the Torah. They are celebrating God's Word. And then once they have completed their celebration, they immediately begin to read through the Torah for the next year. I would suggest that Christians should follow this Jewish example and make sure that you're reading your Bible on a daily basis. This will assist you as indeed you go through your Christian life and walk with the Lord. And Winky did update us on the election process. It's a mess. The prime minister has given back the mandate. Now the opposition party leader, Benny Gantz, will have to try to form a coalition. It's going to be more difficult for Benny than it was for Benjamin Netanyahu. 
Then John Rood came to the broadcast table. We focused again on Tayyip Erdogan, who is the president of Turkey. He went to Russia in a summit meeting with Vladimir Putin, president of Russia. And I've got to say, and in fact, the world should recognize Erdogan, a member of NATO, and Putin, the president of Russia. That type of a meeting should ring alarm bells in NATO. Remember, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was put together for the purpose of protecting the European Union membership from Russia. Now, that's the political significance of all of that. Prophetically, we see unfolding in these very special meetings between these world leaders the end-time scenario that's found in the Word of God. There will be two major players in the end times. One of them will be the European Union, or should we say in prophetic terms, the revived Roman Empire, and then the other, a coalition of Islamic states that want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, and they will be led by the leader of Russia. Two major players in the beginning of the tribulation, both are on the stage ready to get into action. Colonel Bob McGinnis from the Pentagon came to tell us about his book, Future Wars. We talked about what's going to be the way and method of fighting in the future. Will it be man-to-man or will it be some type of an artificial intelligence type weapon? Should we be concerned about this AI weapon? Can a man control it, etc.? But we do know there will be future wars. Jesus said that in his Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24. He made the statement in verses 6 and 7, wars and rumors of wars. Now those wars will be the Magog War, Revelation 6 verses 3 and 4, also Ezekiel 38, Psalm 83, and Daniel chapter 11. And then at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the battle of Armageddon, And that is Revelation chapter 19. Then I had my conversation with David James. We focused on what John MacArthur had to say to and about Beth Moore. You know, the Bible is very clear on women teaching men. Women can teach children. Women can teach women. But women must not usurp authority over men by teaching the Bible. That is not a male chauvinist opinion. That is a biblical statement clearly found in God's Word. John MacArthur should have responded more Christ-like, I'll have to admit that, but all of us at times will fall into that type of a situation. Well, everything we talked about with our broadcast partners today is evidence that the next event on God's calendar of activities, the rapture of the church, could happen at any moment. And having said that, there's basically nothing else for me to say except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.